innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff, rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight! H-U-P-L-P, Hillsboro, the center of the known world. I'm saying that even though I don't have to, because we're not on W-H-U-P today. It's snowy in North Carolina, which means the whole state has stopped and we're under a state of emergency. So I'm here at my place, um, looking out at my bass downs playing in the snow, recording the show. Uh, the lovely and talented Trevor Hayes is trapped in Cary, North Carolina, under similar conditions, but with a shark onesie and with different dogs. Anyway, this is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the fighting arts in the Carolinas and beyond, and neither rain nor, nor snow nor sleet nor any other sort of weird weather conditions can stop us from getting our podcast out. So I'm doing this from my living room. Uh, so if you hear a difference in the sound, that's probably why. Uh, my name is Jeff Shaw. I expect to see the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man over downtown Durham anytime now, wrecking the whole place. Uh, so ordinarily, we would be coming to you live on 104.7 FM, streaming live at whoopfm.org, but instead, we're coming to you from my kitchen, and that's fine. Uh, today, I'm really excited about an interview I just did uh, with my friend David Porter. Uh, many of you know Dave as an active brown belt competitor, uh, an outstanding uh, technical jujitsu guy with a really interesting perspective on the art who does things differently than a lot of other high-level practitioners do. We talked to him both about his experiences, he told some great stories, and uh, really broke down some technical jujitsu moves. For so for your jujitsu nerds out there, especially those of you interested in the Darce choke uh, and how to prevent guard pulls, as well as uh, training philosophy, you'll want to hang around for that. And so that'll be in about ten minutes. Um, before that, I'm going to summarize some martial arts news from the weekend and some upcoming stuff. Um, so if I missed anything, please let me know. Uh, the Concussion Cast is on Twitter and Instagram at CagesideWhoop, CagesideWhoop. You can also shout us out using the hashtag CagesideWhoop. Our email is CagesideWhoop at gmail.com, and we're on Facebook at CagesideRadio. And believe you me, you'll want to check out the Facebook page today because we got some cool videos that I'm going to be posting uh, that'll help you understand some of the Dave Porter interview. If you miss the show, uh, you can always catch the replay at whoopfm.org, except for this show, where you'll only be able to catch the replay on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher if you can, and if you like the show, you can always leave us a review. So, without further ado, let's talk about the news. Competition drives me crazy. I hate it. And I hate it so much that it drives me to want to conquer it. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. So the big news in North Carolina martial arts today is actually the weather. The same weather that has me trapped in my house, looking out at the snow as my bass announced asleep in front of the wood stoves while I wear Doctor Who pajamas. And that's actually true, in case you have any doubts, which you probably don't. But the snow, uh, you know, at this point, we had hoped to be interviewing Dewan Owens or Daniel Branch, who fought on the Next Level Fight Club card last night in Raleigh with Pro MMA returning to the Triangle. Unfortunately, that card has been delayed. So 
the, I'm sure that's really tough for all the fighters, you know, people that had begun their weight cuts, especially. So that's really unfortunate. And it's unfortunate for fight fans who really wanted to see uh, the emergence, the reemergence of pro mixed martial arts in the triangle. The good news is that the card has been rescheduled. It's been rescheduled for February 27th. Um, so if you have tickets, those tickets will be honored. If you don't have tickets, uh, then you can still get tickets, which means you uh, didn't miss out on the opportunity to see pro MMA in the triangle. Here's sort of the problem with that reschedule, and I'm be interested to see what becomes of this. It creates an unfortunate glut of scheduling. So February 27th now features the next level fight card in Raleigh uh, at the Kerr Scott building. It also features the Extreme Submission Challenge uh, Jiu-Jitsu fight card, which is Jiu-Jitsu in a cage out in Elizabeth City. That's a card that I'm supposed to compete on, as well as my teammates Jojo Poteet, Alex Cummings are supposed to compete on that, DeAndre Corbet is supposed to compete on that card, well, John Shell, uh, a bunch of dudes that I know, a bunch of really good Jiu-Jitsu competitors are supposed to compete on that card. Not only that, February 27th also is when amateur kickboxing is come, going to come right to downtown Durham, a quarter mile from my house at the Durham Armory, the same place where the Bull City Brawl is held. Um, so those are three big events that would have sort of the same demographic that uh, are now slated to be on the same day. And I think that's unfortunate. Some other nature has done fight fans dirty over the last couple of days. I'll be interested to see how that shakes out, whether one or I doubt they'll reschedule any of those events. But as somebody that would like to attend all three, um, it's sort of a bummer that they're on the same night. On the plus side, my man Dewan Owens can eat now, uh, and so I know he's excited about that. And uh, you know, whereas you know, and, and those of you that haven't cut weight for a tournament or a fight before, it's a really miserable experience, especially if you're going down a huge amount of weight. You know, 20, 30 pounds. You have to restrict your caloric intake. You have to pay really careful attention to your diet, to your water consumption. As it gets closer to the event. Um, you actually, you know, many fighters will use the sauna to take water out of their bodies, uh, which is a really taxing experience. And uh, I'm just really glad that they canceled the card before anybody had gone to the sauna because that could have been ugly. So that's one of the big elements of news uh, that's happened. Another big element of news is the IBJJF Atlanta Open is in a couple of weeks. That's going to be February 6th in Atlanta. Um, I'm competing at that. A bunch of Team Hoist Gracie folks are competing at that. It's always a big tournament. It's as close as the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation tournaments come to North Carolina. And so six-hour drive, a lot of us make the road trip. I'll be there with my camera. I'll be there with video. I'll be taking sound for the concussion cast. And to the extent that I'm able, I'm, I'm competing. So you never know how the timing is going to work out. I'm going to try and periscope some of the matches. So my instructor, Seth Champ, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, who has been on the show, is also going to be competing. Um, I'm going to try as much as I can to broadcast black belt matches first, and then brown belt matches, purple belt matches, to the extent that I'm able to. So you can follow us on uh, Periscope at Cage Side Whoop and be uh, informed about all that stuff. Otherwise, we're just going to be posting updates from the Atlanta Open. If you are competing at the Atlanta Open and are a listener to the podcast, or if you're just a friend of mine and I don't know that you're competing, please send us a message at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com, post on the Facebook, or hit us up on Twitter. I want to make sure to get a comprehensive list of all the people that I know that are competing so that I can have a comprehensive list of the results uh, the week after the podcast. The podcast will go off on February 7th, so I'm going to drive back uh, that night so we can give you a full report on the IBJJF Atlanta Open. So that's the news. If I missed anything, feel free to let me know. Uh, Trevor will be back with us next week with an exciting new segment that I'm pretty pumped about. Um, just going to throw a teaser out there. 
And another thing I'm really excited about is the interview with David Porter, brown belt under Pedro Sauer. So let's get right into that. I don't consider myself, you know, like, oh, I do martial arts in my spare time. I'm a fighter all the time. And even if I'm not fighting, that, that 100% drives who I am as a human. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. So we're here with David Porter. He's a Pedro Sauer brown belt, an active competitor, a military veteran of the Marine Corps, and just an all-around great dude that we're happy to have on the show. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm great, Jeff. Thank you guys for having me so much. This is an honor and a privilege. Uh, love your show. Listen to it every weekend, and it's just great to be on it. Well, you're too kind, but that's one of the many things to love about you. Uh, so maybe you could get started by telling the listeners how you got started training jiu-jitsu. Okay, it's a pretty interesting story since, uh, no, I look at I look at grappling in all of its forms, and I have been a part of it since kind of high school when you think about it. Uh, wrestling in high school, wrestling in college for a little bit, um, got into sambo briefly, and then I, I made my transition into jiu-jitsu on my islands, um, most notably training with some guys at the, uh, from the, the Matt Serra school in uh, Mineola. I believe now I think they're somewhere else, but, uh, you know, transitioned out of there pretty quickly. Uh, I didn't quite fit in at that point in time. This is now 2005 and eventually in my travels, you know, went into the Marine Corps, trained in North Carolina, Fernando Salvador and, uh, Kevin Piles and a group of guys down there, uh, eventually got out of the Marine Corps and I looked at my competition record and I said, man, I'm winning a lot of tournaments just on what I call the, the, the will to win, not the skill to win. Mm. And the guys that were beating me with, you know, finesse were these guys from the Pedro Sauer Association. So I wanted to see what, what the deal was. And when I was looking for places to settle down after my military uh, tenure was over, I said, you know what? I'm going to go to the Pedro Sauer School. Took one class, signed up immediately, have no regrets. You get into something I wanted to ask you about, which is the role that your military service played in your training. How, how does that inform the way you train jiu-jitsu? Does it? Um, how did it while you were active duty, and does it continue to? So currently the Marine Corps has a program called MICMAP. It actually stands for the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. And, you know, the military loves their acronyms, and that's great and all. Um, they have a five-belt system. It's tan, gray, green, brown, and black. So that colors are still tactical with all of the uh, um, digital camo uniforms and such. And it's really just like a cursory overview of a bunch of basic mechanics from different martial arts. Like they have a hip toss. They have a basic set of, you know, small joint manipulations like fingers and wrists. Um, They also have things like how to close in with an enemy using a bayonet. So it's like, it's very, it's very um, great for what it is, which is to introduce the average 18-year-old kid fresh out of high school who's making the transition into military life to get some kind of training that w- will stick because it's basically, you know, you train their gross motor skills. You can't get, you know, fine movements and, you know, elaborate techniques to work if the guy's only going to be in for four years, you know, as well as I do four years is really like, you know, getting your, your feet wet. So, um, the martial arts program that the military is currently using for the Marine Corps, it's great for what it does, but it leaves much to be desired. So 
I actually found a lot of my my training was outside of the realm of NIGMAP, and I found a, a great training partner, Tom Kubaki, and uh, another one, Audrey Kniseri, and we basically trained ourselves as blue and purple belts for the better part of like three years. Fantastic. And, you know, and like you said, with training other martial arts, it's, you know, you, you get the training where you find it. And if you, and if you work with an open mind, uh, you're able to incorporate techniques that work. And I want to get into your unique style of jiu-jitsu in a bit. But, um, but first, I want to talk about uh, a trip to Brazil you took in 2014. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, this was the year you got your brown belt, if I'm not mistaken. And correct, correct. I tested, I tested directly under Master Pedro Sauer in Brazil at his, uh, at his property, the Posada uh, Mata Atlantica do Sauer in Petropolis, Brazil. And uh, the trip was very interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm told I should ask about your piranha soup recipe. Oh, God. Well, it's not my recipe so much as it was Professor Sauer's brother, uh, Carlos. He had uh, went to like the Amazon and he was, you know, he was, a, he's a shaman. So by trade, he, he's a healer and he visits the indigenous people of the Amazon. And I guess on one of his stints that happened to be around uh, that time when he was out that way, he had picked up some piranha and he decided, yeah, these, the, the, the natives really love them. They said they're great for vigor and all these other awesome benefits. I think these athletes would really love piranha soup. So basically, uh, he goes into the kitchen at, at the Posada and he starts whipping up a batch of this soup, which we can only explain as the most fishy thing you have ever smelled in your life. And uh, I'm pretty sure he just threw them into a blender uh, with bones and guts and basically poured it into a stew pot because basically that's what it tasted like. And uh, the magic really started to begin the next morning. <laughs> And what type of magic are we talking about exactly? Oh, there are some things I just won't get explicit about, <laughs> but uh, we'll just say, you know, the projectile and explosiveness of the, uh, the exit to this food was, was not desirable. <laughs> so did that, did that experience, was that at the beginning of your trip? Was that toward the end of your trip? How did it affect the rest of your training while you were down there? Oh, no, 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 no. That would be way too convenient. So this happened the night before I tested for my brown belt. Oh, so we had the piranha soup and then we actually had a party on the property where we had, a, you know, like a, a DJ, a bartender making cachaça drinks, um, you know, tons of dancing, people from out in the, in the local area that weren't a part of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu camp. Um, we were like partying until, you know, two in the morning. And then I was up till about five in the morning kicking people off the property with uh, Tiago, one of the, the resident uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors from the camp. Um, who actually lives there full time all year round. And the two of us were just kicking people off the property till five. I get up at seven to have breakfast. And uh, Mike Horahan, who's one of the black belts under, under uh, Master Sauer, says, Hey, you're ready to test today? I go, Haha, you're funny. He goes, No, it's in like two hours. And sure enough, he was right. So I was bleep deprived, hungover, you know, food poisoning. And by the way, guys, here's, uh, here's Dave Porter testing for his brown belt. Well, you have to figure that if you can succeed under that test in those conditions, optimal conditions are going to be a snap. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the killer part for me was I think for the most part I crushed the test. And I was uh, 
I was running it solo. There were no other people testing for their brown belt or black that time. So all eyes were on me for the most part. Uh, I think we have uh, Jake Horahan, Mike's son, testing for his purple belt. So, you know, he's off to the side. But here I am, you know, cruising through the test. And uh, of all the things to really, like, you know, slam on the brakes was, you know, the, the Gracie self-defense is what we do for our brown belt test. And as I'm going through all of it, pretty easy, I get to the hand chop and whole hold up. Wait a minute, you got to fix that. And Pedro gets up, Master Sour. He gets up and he's like, oh, no, no, you really got to sell it. And for about three minutes of my test, he's correcting my hand chop. Wow. All about the details. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, usually, it's, it's usually the smaller techniques that you don't, uh, you don't really put all of your focus on. So for me, you know, all the different throws and manipulations and the, the groundwork and everything else, flawless. I do a hand chop and I just kind of like, eh, you know, I chop, I chop the air. Oh no, no, my friend, you got to do it like this. And of course, professor, he's like oozing with charisma. So he just kind of like fingers his, his hand through his hair as he looks back. And then when he turns, he gives the most deadly hand chop you've ever seen in your life. For those, for listeners who aren't familiar with Pedro Sauer, maybe you practice something other than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Pedro Sauer is an absolute legend, and everyone who knows anything about Jiu-Jitsu has the utmost respect for him. Uh, so I can only imagine what kind of an experience that was to receive your brown belt in that environment from him. It was great, and I've got to say, like like I had mentioned earlier in the show already, there was a long period of time where I felt I was winning at tournaments just on the the, the desire to not give up and just keep pushing forward and, you know, squeeze myself out of pretty much dead to right submissions. And it's like, uh, I was forcing a square peg through a round hole for the better part of six and a half, seven years. And then, uh, I find him and immediately it's not like I learned a hundred new techniques. It's like he cleaned up the 100 existing techniques I had. And it was night and day how much, uh, I just improved from a technical standpoint under his guidance. He is living jujitsu. That affords us the opportunity to talk about your competition history, and there's a lot about this I want to talk to you about. For one thing, as a fellow nerd, um, I really admire you're one of those people that keeps very complete and meticulous records of your competition record. Uh, I'm wondering what you get out of that, how you got started with it, and uh, and why you what, and maybe you could describe what you do and why you do it. It's really circular when you think about it because since I didn't have a lot of hands-on instruction for um, more than half of my time doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I had to be as analytical as possible when concerning my growth. So a part of a large part of that came down to uh, reviewing tape, seeing what I was doing, seeing what my opponents were doing, how they were effectively scoring on me or putting me into positions. And then going back to, uh, you know, what effect effectively was the laboratory, right? When we would go back to the mat and just have our time to drill and I get my training partners together and I'd say, okay, so I use this, I did that. Where can we make it better? Is this working? Is that working? And then we'd look at something and we'd go, oh no, that's a lot of moves, you know? And, you know, we'd fine tune it. And, uh, I kept that going since about 2010. So it hadn't always been that way. But when I realized that there was a problem, that's when I started to be as 
uh, meticulous as possible with documenting every finish, every you know minute of a match. And so, yeah, I've compiled a lot of data on that. And obviously, your competition record shows that that data has paid dividends. Uh, and we'll talk about some of your competitive success and your favorite matches in a second. One thing I'm interested in asking you about is your competitor mindset. Obviously, you're a competitive person. Obviously, you take this seriously. And yet, you will put out videos that describe in detail what you do. You'll distribute those videos for free to various jiu-jitsu groups on the internet. And you'll even travel at least a couple of times to other gyms to teach guys in your division how to address what you do. And I really admire and respect that. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your motivation for that. Because clearly it's not just about getting the win for you. Not at all. And, you know, I actually want to segue quickly before I answer that with a huge shout out to Alan Bevier. Um, if you're not familiar, Alan is a really, really great dude. Um, awesome internet troll as well. But, you know, more for his jiu-jitsu. He, brown belt under Billy Dowie. Uh, he's, he's one of the few people that... You know, I competed against, I had one really quick uh, Darce finish against him back in, I think, 2013, December at a sub only in Richmond. And from that event forward, you know, I was very open with him. I wanted to befriend him, uh, sent him a friend request on Facebook, gave him basically the keys to the kingdom, all of my setups, videos on what I do, talked to him about my game. And the guy just took it and ran with it. And next thing you know, I lost four consecutive matches to Allen and I had never been happier. Because it just shows that, you know, I, I could do the same thing. If, if someone were, if we were all very open with each other and nothing was, you know, a secret, everybody could just get better. But it's almost like an old Kung Fu movie where the master wants to die with the secret or, you know, whatever great fighter just has their awesome technique and they never want to share it. I, on the other hand, feel the other way. I think that I have a few things that I'm successful with and not necessarily that they're better than other ways of people doing it, but maybe, just maybe, it'll work better for somebody else like it has for me. So I want to spread that that around as well. That makes perfect sense. And and, that, and now, you know, this is a, as good a time as any to get into the specific nuts and bolts of what you do. Um, f- for one thing, you're really known for your darst choke. And uh, you were telling me a story uh, in our pre-interview about all the different unique darces and darce setups you do and the, and the game of horse. And I'm wondering if maybe you can explain exactly how many times or how many different darces you have and how you develop those. So we have, and by we, I mean uh, myself, my training partner, John Reeves, and all of my other training partners that are involved to some degree with my training at the Pedro Sauer headquarters. But uh, mainly John Reeves and I, he's a fellow brown belt under Master Sauer. We figured out that I have 57 unique entries to the Dars. And, um, you know, obviously there's, a, there, there's some degree of overlap. Certain things are just, you know, the, a similar mechanic off of a different escape or uh, off of a different failed submission. But... You know, 57 different ways of getting to a move makes it fairly dominant in my arsenal. Although, it's funny when I talk about like the Bravo, the Dars, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's not even my number one move in tournament. Um, Going back to that whole analytical side of things, when I do my breakdown, I'm most known for my guillotine and my straight ankle lock. And yet, 
you know, the, the Bravo, the Dars, it's like, it's what I'm known for because when you're looking, um, when you're looking at the field of competitors, you'll see guillotines, you'll see straight ankle locks, but you really won't see too many people darsing somebody else. And I think it's the more the finesse of how I do it kind of stands out because I am, I am one of the greediest people in the world. The second I get angle and enough room to shoot an arm up to do the move. I think that's a very astute analysis because it is an unusual, not only is it a, a more unusual move than something like a guillotine or a straight ankle lock, the way you do it, um, and whether this is stylistic or for effectiveness' sake, is different than the way most people do it. And we actually got a listener question from Andrew Foster, who's a really good purple belt, who's a fan of the Dars. So thanks, Andrew, for sending in this question about the specific technique of how you do this. Um, you know, the Dars can be finished from the top, it can be finished from the bottom, and it can be finished when you're on either hip. And what Andrew says is interesting about the way you do this technique is you're one of the few people that will voluntarily give up top position with the Dars to, to get to the finish by something that Bill Cooper calls a Sonic the Hedgehog roll, uh, like you'll roll. And Andrew suggested we ask you about that bottom hip, about that rolling finish, and specifically, uh, like, I, and I, I'll have something to say about, we'll have some multimedia content available for the listeners after this, but I'd like to hear your, your answer to that question about why you do that, what, what the purpose for that is. Yeah, so for starters, Andrew's an awesome dude. I trained with him once at the 50-50 Academy, uh, Ryan Hall's place, and we had talked for maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes after a given roll about how my setups worked then. And I was, I was not necessarily in a rush, but, you know, when you're at 50-50, you're, uh, <laughs> you're going to train, you know. And it's, uh, it's an environment where there's tons of good guys around. You know, Ryan was there. Seth, was, Seth Smith was still there. And, um, you know, I wanted to get my training in. So I, I didn't necessarily brush him off, but Andrew had some questions. I was like, listen, man. Hit me up anytime you want on, on Facebook. I, I gave him an invite to uh, the technique page that I, I have all my moves on. But I didn't really get in depth. And I think his question was really, really precise. And I think the answer to it is that when he says you can finish it top or bottom, that's true. When he says you can finish it on either hip, that's where we have issues. I firmly believe you can only finish the choke on one specific hip. Now, there are classically three ways that you can apply the choke. There's a sprawl method when you're on top where you just kind of lift and squeeze. I don't prefer that. Um, the reason being, I think of like Grandmaster Elio. Guy was never able to do one pull-up in his entire life, but he sure as hell choked the hell out of people. So he knew something about leverage. And for me, if I can say, all right, I have to squeeze really hard to get this move. I don't really look at it as jujitsu. So I'm always looking for the more um, finesse way of doing something. And so I don't finish with the sprawl method. And then there's a slide and then there's a flip. And both of those will put me on, on the hip farthest from the lock. So the idea is if you were to take the, someone's back in a back triangle, right, a body lock, which side do you not want to fall towards if you're the guy doing the body lock, Jeff? You don't want to fall to the side it's locked on. Correct. The same is true with any kind of Darce choke, right? And the same thing is true with a regular triangle. Any triangling of the arms or legs, you don't fall towards the locking side. Well, when you say you can finish it either hip, you can't. You actually have to finish it 
on the opposite hip of the locking side. So for me, the reason I do that uh, Sonic the Hedgehog roll is because it puts me on the correct hip. Uh, it's, it's really as simple as my philosophy on other aspects of jujitsu, like the regular triangle or the body lock. I don't fall towards the locking side. So I hope that helps, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps my understanding of it. And, and for, for everybody that's curious about what we're talking about, we're getting deep into the technical jujitsu nerdery here. What uh, we're going to post on the Facebook page, I made a little video compiling two Dars finishes that Dave did, including one where uh, the opposing coach essentially coaches the opponent right into the Dars. Um, and it's sort of like it, 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 in this video, I'll add some text that sort of relates to Dave's answer here. Is hopefully seeing it and seeing some some gifs of other people doing the Dars will help you jujitsu folks understand what you know what, why Dave answered that question the way he did and why he does the Dars the way he did. So the, the other unique thing about you that I think a lot of people notice is your your unique stance to start the match. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I want to ask you about like about some artistic stuff about that too. But is there is there a, is there a reason that you do that? This sort of like mongoose like stance, or uh, is there a how did that come about? You know, first off, I got to answer that last part. Uh, when you say the mongoose like stance, I got the nickname mongoose from Nestor down in uh, Coastal BJJ. He's a Pedro Sauer black belt, um, trained under Frank Cucci with Lynx Academy. And Nestor's a great dude. And if you know DeAndre, and I know you do, um, probably one of the best purple belts in the region. I mean, the guy is a monster. And he was coming up for a random event. I think it was like a kid's open mat. And this was over a year, maybe a year and a half ago. DeAndre and I had this great conversation about how, you know, jujitsu is like, you, you never see a mousetrap chasing a mouse, right? You, you set out your bait. The mouse comes to you. So I was talking about the bait I use, but then at the same time, it's knowing your opponent's weaknesses. So for me, I likened it to the metaphor of the mongoose catching the snake. You know, the mongoose isn't faster than the snake and he doesn't, he's not invulnerable. You know, mongoose do die to snake, to snake bites. But the reason why the mongoose can win is because he uses a higher intellect. He'll run counter to the direction of the coil of the snake and draw out all the snake's length before he strikes at it. So then the snake's not as strong in its, in its best position. So technically speaking, if you want to talk about a mongoose, it does good jujitsu. And so he goes back, he tells Nestor, and then from there on, Nestor just starts calling me mongoose at every single event I ever see him at. Then uh, as far as the stance goes, talking about knowing your opponent and their weaknesses, I started to notice a lot more um, of this paradigm shift towards jumping guard or, or just pulling guard or going straight into a seated guard at jiu-jitsu competitions. And yet I still wanted to defend against the shot. So I figured a way to, to drop my level, get my hips away, block the guard pull and the, and the, uh, the jump guard completely, while at the same time maintaining defense on my lead leg. So realistically, the environment forced me into the stance. All of that makes perfect sense. And to to um, to sort of piggyback on the notion of the mongoose, one of uh, the best artists in the jiu-jitsu community who goes by the Namdar Mirkatsu, Seymour Yang, he's a black belt now under Haji Gracie, did a signature t-shirt for you 
Dave Porter the mongoose T-shirt with a with a with a stylized rendering of that stance. And I'm wondering if you could tell us how how you got connected with Mirkatsu, how the idea came to do that to do that signature shirt. It's pretty interesting. I spent. I sent him an individual, like, just personalized message maybe a year ago asking if I could commission him for the artwork. And uh, at first it was, hey, I, don't, I know you're, you're best known for your, your geishas fighting demons and doing that stuff. Could you do, like, a heavenly bravo, a heavenly darst joke? And he actually sent a message back rather quickly saying – you know, I've thought about the idea for so long. It's a great idea. It's just hard to conceptually get it going because in all of my pieces like that, I, I love it if I can show both faces, hers and the demon. And it just wasn't feasible for him to do that design at the time. So we kept open, uh, open contact, but never really pushed any ideas forward. Now, about, I want to say it was June or July timeframe of this past year, my sponsor with Lanky Fight Gear, John Robinson, the owner, he, uh, he and I had come to the, the idea that maybe we could do a signature tee for me because he, uh, he had done one for Mike Bustelli, who's the Bellator fighter. That's uh, another sponsored athlete. He had done a few other, you know, uh, just signature T-shirts to raise money for, uh, for different athletes. And I was looking forward to, you know, traveling around and doing a ton of tournaments. And it gets expensive, as you know. So... As my sponsor, he was like, all right, I think I have a great idea. I'll make a Dave Porter signature tee, and I think I've got something in the works to make it uh, even more special. So a few weeks go by, and you know, all of a sudden I get this message from him, and he goes, hey, you got to keep this secret, but you'll never believe what I got going on. He had contacted uh, Seymour Yang and uh, you know, Merkatsu, and he shows me the sketches, and I was blown away. And there were three sketches. Um, all of them were great and I can actually send them to you after the, after the show, but the sketches were awesome. And it was the number one sketch, the one at the very top was like, perfect. So like, let's run with that. And then the only other thing was, Hey, uh, I know you're going to Brazil again. You're not going to get upgraded. Are you anytime soon? Cause we're trying to figure out if we need to put a brown or a black belt on this monitor. So I was like, uh, just keep it brown for now. <laughs> and, uh, that's how the shirt was made. And I'm very, very honored. It's, it's not often you get your own customized piece of artwork uh, made by arguably the most iconic artist in the jiu-jitsu community. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, Mirkatsu is such a prominent guy who does, uh, you know, not only great artwork, but a lot of great charity stuff as well. So that was a real, you know, that's a really significant thing for, for me. And so I'm glad that you got to have that experience. Um, so in all the in all the matches that you've had in jiu-jitsu, which I which I know you have an almost Rain Man like recollection of, do you have a favorite among those matches? Uh yes. Favorite favorite is de definitely the better word. Um I would say my match with Cody Malte was probably my favorite match for multiple reasons. Uh for starters, he and I are both Marines. Um you know, we didn't serve under the same command or anything like that, or even in the same uh, time period, so to speak. But, you know, he's got a very similar mindset. He loves jujitsu. He, you know, lives this stuff as well as I do. And we both have a very, very dynamic submission-based game. And yet each of us are very elusive too. So I knew going in, and this was for Toro Cup too, and I knew going in that, you know, we're supporting a great charity. Neither of us are there to just, you know, stand on a podium. It was for 
the, I, I believe it was, um, what was it? The ASPCA of Raleigh. Yeah. I think that was Toro yeah. Cup two. Yeah. Toro Cup two. Yeah. Is an so, you know, yeah. And I, and I love animals. So for me, it was like, it was just the joy of being there knowing that we'd raise money for a great cause. And he was doing the same and, you know, going into the match, it was just every position, every position we hit. I don't think there was a single position in all of jujitsu that was not accomplished in that 13 minute match. And, you know, I remember putting him in a cross choke and hearing his collar rip and he's not tapping. You can't, you can't put words to that. It's just mind blowing how, how tough he was. And then, uh, Ultimately, you know, the match goes back and forth. We're having fun with it. We're each smiling. I think I, I just put my finger on his nose and booped him once, and then he did the same to me. Um, I think he actually did it first, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, I, I'm like, man, this is this is too much fun. And it was really unfortunate because, like, the submission was, uh, was like a belly-down toe hold, and his ankle popped. And it wasn't, uh, wasn't intentional or malicious. It was just the, the angle of the position. And I was almost pissed off because the match had to end that way. And I'd rather, you know, kept going until sudden death. And then we get five more minutes of play and then, you know, more sudden death or, you know, whatever. I just wanted to keep it going because it was, it was excellent. I think that is probably one of my favorite matches. It's certainly one of my favorite Toro Cup matches. And who knows, maybe there can be a, maybe, you know, we will have more Toro Cups. And so I think a lot of people thought that match was exciting. So maybe we can redo it now that Cody has his new school open. At some point, so yeah, you know, and I and I would love to give him that opportunity because obviously that's a terrible way for the match to end, and he is excellent. And you know, at the last Toro Cup, he's now a black belt. He won his Toro Cup match, and I believe it was guillotine, that was um, it. which which he's known for. It's, it's his thing, and that was a part of why I loved the other match so much. I shot a Dars from the bottom, and he completely shut it down. He shot a guillotine choke on me. I shut it down. And I think that's what makes great matchups when you're, when you're fighting right there toe to toe. And it's like when you saw, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali back in the day and he would just like stand in front of you, but his head movement was just so elusive. You'd never made contact. I think those are great fights. So in terms of preparation for a match like that, um, how do you go about like, you know, I guess I have a two part question. How do you go about training for a specific opponent when you have a super fight like a Toro Cup? Or how do you go about day-to-day training, just knowing that you might have a tournament, but you don't have a specific guy in mind to train for? Is there a difference between those two? Ooh, let's see. I don't think I train any differently per se. Um, I know that when I had my All-Star Invitational match through the good fight with with a few different guys, I looked at it like... uh, okay, what kind of materials online about this guy? What can I see about them? So, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really delve too deep into it because I can't change. I can't really change my game at this point. It's not, it's like asking DeAndre if he wants to give up the bow and arrow choke. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Right. Exactly. So uh, I just know where my strengths are. So I kind of, instead of, instead of adding stuff to my repertoire, I would funnel my game to more specific aspects of what would work for that tailored situation because I already have the tools. 
And I think that's really what it was. And like, especially with uh, my match against uh, Diego Bispo, black belt from Virginia beach, I knew he had a really, really dynamic passing game. So I need to kind of almost play like uh, the Meow Brothers and keep my uh, my uh, my knees close to my chest, <laughs> and then wait for an opportunity to shoot like single leg X and start going into some leg lock series stuff, and eventually got an over under and a heel hook, and that was a wrap. I think it was like a three minute match, and this is a a really good competitor. It's just I happen to have a, a pretty solid game plan going into it. You know, I think that's it. Yeah, and that was the Diego Bispo match was an exciting match. Interestingly, heel hooks allowed in the gi there. Um, we'll post that match along with some of the other uh, Dave Porter matches for folks to watch uh, in the in right after we uh, we get this we get this podcast up. So you know, and, and I I hear what you're saying about you know not training necessarily any differently. It's like the Marcelo Garcia philosophy of you know as long as you you know your game and you're confident in your game, you don't want to get too thrown off by what the other guy wants to do. I'm wondering what you think the most common training mistake you see among people that have achieved a certain level of proficiency is like, obviously you put a lot of thought into how to train. And so you see younger guys, newer guys like blue belts, you know, maybe, maybe early purple belts. What do you think the biggest mistake those folks make while training is? I don't know which one I think is worse. Let me, let me rephrase that. I think it really boils down to two big mistakes. The first one is they try to get stronger to get better at jujitsu. So I, I think everybody's pretty well aware that there's like a, what I call a vitamin S problem, you know, steroids, mm-hmm. um, especially at the IBGGF upper levels. And there needs to be a little bit more regulation involved with that. But it's even just like the white belt or blue belt who thinks that if they can, you know, do a burpee out of a triangle, that they'll be great. Uh, aside from that, there's also, the, the ideology that, oh, well, I'll just go faster. Well, when you gain the game, especially when you're in a training environment like your academy, and you're just supposed to drill the damn move, just do that. Exactly how the instructor says. Feel the mechanics. You're going to get so much better just based off of doing the move correctly at a slower pace and getting it as opposed to rushing through it and having this gross mock-up of what the move could be, because now you really don't even understand what you're supposed to be doing. And I think it's really evident when you see these guys that get to a purple-brown belt level that I've competed against in the last few years that try, like, the bullfighter path, the Toriando, because it's a very explosive and fast move. But they're not even leading with their legs anymore. They're leaving their hips behind, they're turning sideways, they're giving me the openings for some of my better submissions, and it's a wrap. And the reason for that is they really just forgot the basics of feel the mechanics, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I think those are the two big ones, Jeff. I wish that we were in the studio together for many reasons, but especially so you could see me vigorously nodding along to everything you just said. I think we've all seen guys that have made, <laughs> we've all seen guys that have made those mistakes. Well, is there, yeah. is there anything that I haven't asked about that you feel like it's important that the listeners know? Uh, oh, I think, I think an overlooked aspect of, of jujitsu training is recovery. And especially for me, I'm, I'm doing about, you know, 25 to 35 hours a week of jujitsu training and, uh, and or teaching. 
the only way I'd be able to sustain that is if I rest my body and, you know, I really focus on how much I sleep, how much I eat, what I'm eating, how much I stretch. There are things like, uh, you know, you'll, you'll always encounter that one guy who has the excessive amount of hand tape. Um, you know, a lot of that can be done with just better practices before training, after training, and, and then obviously going back to what I said before, you know, the right training methodology, which is don't go explosive every day you're in the academy. Some days it's better to just methodically do the move at a slow snail's pace and feel it out. That way you don't have a bunch of jammed up fingers. So we have to, we have to take our bodies and think about them as almost like a, like a brand new vehicle off the lot. At the point in time when you start getting into jujitsu, you, you have a decent amount of mileage on that vehicle already. The only difference is we can't trade in this model. We're stuck with this for life. So you want to make sure that you're giving it its tune-ups, checking it regularly, making sure that you, you know, rotate the tires, so to speak, give yourself a break. And remember, we're in this for the long haul. It's, it's jujitsu for life. We're not trying to just be the best blue belt right now or the best black belt for a year. It's we want to be great practitioners of the art for the rest of our lives. And when I say stuff to my students that are in the juvenile uh, belt system, like yellow belts, orange belts right now, I ask them, how long do they think it'll take for them to get their black belt? They'll say something like, oh, 10, 15 years. I'm like, great. How long do you plan on living? Oh, 80, 90, 100 years old. I'm like, cool, me too. You know, the two of us right now, the disparity between our belt levels might be the difference of eight years, nine years. But eventually, we will be black belts together longer than when we weren't. Mm-hmm. That's very important for people to know, and I'm glad that you tell folks that. Well, Dave, you're also a Lanky sponsor. You're a sponsored fighter from Lanky, and I'm wondering if you have any any other sponsors you want to thank before we get on out of here. Uh, not at the moment. I actually had a little bit more sponsorship a year ago, but then I decided that um, the direction wasn't right for me. Right now, Lanky is the only sponsor I have and the only one I need. Uh, the the gis that they make, they don't just make them for long-limbed, skinny people like myself. They make every size available, especially during pre-sales. But they even make, aside from just like the L sizes, they make uh, a LT sizes, or sorry, TL sizes. I think I'm getting that backwards. I get hit in the head a lot, Jeff. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is called the concussion but, cast, so... <laughs> yeah, well, damn, I should be like the number one guy calling in there. But the, uh, the sizes that they make, they even make them for super tall, skinny people. Now, my wingspan is already kind of ridiculous. I think I posted a picture of me, you know, uh, swan diving into a, a snowdrift yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm 70 inches tall, and I have a 78-inch wingspan. So yeah, Lanky, Lanky is the brand for me. I imagine so. Well, Dave Porter, Brown Belt under Pedro Sauer, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Sometime when you're down here for a tournament, we'd love to get you in the studio with me and Trevor. I'm all for it. You just let me know when. Take care, Dave. Be well. Jiu-Jitsu is like the gentle art, but I'm not gentle. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org.
My thanks to David Porter for stopping by. It's always a tremendous pleasure to talk to Dave about jiu-jitsu. Before I get on out of here, I want to tell you about our upcoming shows. On February 7th, we're going to have Rob the Lord Humongous, a.k.a. Rob Austin from the Big Jiu-Jitsu Podcast, a guy with a lot of North Carolina ties and a lot of great stories to tell, so be sure to check that out. The 31st, we're going to try to get James Quigg in in anticipation of his pro fight, so be sure to tune in for that. And... I have big plans that I want to tell you about for our February 14th Valentine's Day episode. So Valentine's Day, February 14th, as it happens, is my jiu-jitsu anniversary. That's right. I started doing jiu-jitsu on February 14th, 2011, and I quickly fell in love with it. So for our Valentine's Day show, February 14th, I want to know why you fell in love with the martial arts, whether you're in love with jiu-jitsu, whether you're in love with Muay Thai, MMA, Sambo, thumb wrestling, whatever it is. So please, please... Tell us why you fell in love with the martial arts, and maybe we'll play some of your segment on a show. In order to get at us, call 360-389-2830. We've set up a special Google Voice number to record your stories. That's 360-389-2830. If you call in, leave us a voicemail, tell us your story about why you fell in love with the martial arts, why you love the martial arts, and we're going to use those for some audio segments on our February 14th Valentine's Day show. I want to thank everybody for listening on this snow day. I am Jeff Shaw. He is Trevor Hayes. He will be back with us next week, and hopefully you will too. So thanks very much.